Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and this is Chris Degani here on Talk Show. It is Friday, August 12, 2011. Before we get started, I should probably um, make a note about the volume of this call is, is my telephone. It's always been low. I've always had a problem with it. I'm having a problem with my Skype tonight. Um, getting into talk shoes, so I decided I'd better use the phone. My, my Skype is, for some reason, I, I've been using it for a year and a half, perhaps, for talk shoe, and all of a sudden it, it's acting up and, and it's choppy. I don't know why, especially since the telephone goes over the cable, as well as my Internet service. Well, tonight is um, Matthew chapter 24. Before I get started, I'd like to say a few things. I'll be on... Republic Broadcasting on Wednesday afternoon. There'll be a link on. A, there's already a link on the front page of Christogenia with, with Dina Spengola. I'm not sure what she wants to talk about. I imagine it's related to Adolf Hitler and World War II, since that's a topic that she always, um, or at least frequently, covers on her programs. Tomorrow will be the first day, Saturday night, of, of um, the Christogenia Open Forum back on Tashu. On Saturdays at 8 p.m., I'll be presenting my paper tomorrow night, Baptism in What, and, and hopefully elucidating and, and um, adding to that whatever I, I may be able to, or, or explaining deeper whatever I may be able to. And, and um, after I present the paper, we'll have an, an open discussion, as is um, – well, well I, I had the um, open forum on talk show. It actually – did very well until May of last year when I moved it to the to the Christogenia chat server. The Christogenia chat server is, of course, 24-7. It, it's up and running all the time. There's people there every evening. There's a, a good crew of people there. But um, I decided for various reasons to bring the open forum program back to TalkShoe to make it more public and to um, to make it at a time where more people will hopefully be able to make it. Monday night, late Monday night, is difficult for many people. Okay, now on to Matthew chapter 24. Last week we saw at the end of Matthew chapter 23 that Christ exclaimed to the Judeans, Behold, your house is left you desolate. We then saw from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that Christ was really only confirming something that Yahweh had long before time prophesied through Daniel. Here I shall repeat Daniel 9, 24 through 27 once again, which is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy concerning the advent of the Messiah. Seventy weeks are determined upon my people and upon my holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Remember that Daniel in chapter 9 was actually praying for an understanding into the fate of his people and of Jerusalem and Judah. And to make a reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, it could be shown that that happened, that that um procession of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, even though there were many commands, there were three commands, I believe, that gave the Judeans permission to do that, it, it really didn't begin until um, 457, 456 B.C. Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls at an earlier time, and, and I know that what I say is contrary to all of Judeo-Christian thought on the issue, however, um, that there were notes on Christian Christogenia, which prove out my thesis, the um, Nehemiah had been the governor of Jerusalem up until the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C., and that's when he rebuilt the walls, but he never rebuilt the city. We're talking about the city itself, and, and that was rebuilt by Ezra.
From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. We see 69 prophetic weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. I would say that the people of the prince are the people of Messiah the prince. The Roman people were the people of Christ, being of the tribe of Zarajuda. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he, meaning the Messiah the prince, shall declare, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week shall he cause the sacrifice and the oblations to cease, his sacrifice ending all of the Levitical rituals. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. And we will end the program on that same note tonight. Even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Christ then exclaimed, For I say to you, by no means may you see me, from now until you should say, Blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. But, his triumphant march, where that was exclaimed by the people of the city, by the people of Judea, that triumphant march into Jerusalem had already happened prior to that statement. I believe in Matthew chapter 21. And therefore, those words must have yet another fulfillment. With that, we will move on to Matthew chapter 24. And departing, Joshua went from the temple, and his students came forth to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he responding said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, by no means should it be left here a stone upon a stone which shall not be thrown down. We have just heard Daniel's prophecy that the destruction of Jerusalem would follow the cutting off of the Messiah. Paul, Paul of Tarsus understood this where he wrote his epistle to the Romans, circa 56 AD, and he closed it by saying, Now Yahweh of peace will crush the adversary under your feet quickly, or shortly, as the AV has it. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem, killing 1.1 million Judeans in a five-year war, according to Josephus, 14 years later, 14 years after Paul made that statement. Paul must have known what the words of Daniel and what the words of Christ, which Luke also recorded in Luke chapter 21, Paul must have known what they meant. Matthew 24.3 Then with his sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the students came forth to him by themselves, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what is the sign of your coming and of, and of the consummation of the age? The version of this exchange in Mark's Gospel states at 13.3, and I quote, and upon his being seated in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they questioned him by themselves, Peter and Jacob and John and Andrew. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what is this sign when all these things would be about to be accomplished? Now Luke's account also has two questions. At Luke 21.7, where Luke records, Then they questioned him, saying, Teachers, so when shall these things be, and what is the sign when these things are going to come? Here in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the, that the apostles asked Christ three separate questions. The first one being, tell us when shall these things be, in reference to his statements concerning the destruction of the temple. Two, what is the sign of your coming? 
in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ. And three, and of the consummation of the age in reference to Christ's many statements which mention the end of the age or the world as the King James Version has it such as at Matthew 13:40 and the parable of the wheat and the tares where Christ says therefore just as the tares are gathered and burned in fire thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age so the apostles chose to ask him all these three questions at once at this point where he discusses the destruction of Jerusalem. Yet Mark and Luke each recorded only two of the questions. Now, this is not to say that Mark's or Luke's Gospels conflict with Matthew's. Certainly, they do not. We should only observe that Mark's and Luke's accounts are from different perspectives and the facts were remembered differently. Note that Mark describes only four apostles engaged in this dialogue with Christ, who asked him privately, he said, which is a fact that Matthew and Luke omitted. One person remembers perhaps three parts of an event, out of maybe four or five or three, and another person either remembers or feels it only matters enough to record two of the three parts, perhaps, or perhaps three parts of the four-part event, where one of those parts is not recorded by the first person who related the event. That is not a discrepancy. Rather, it is human, and it happens all the time when various people recollect the same event and give testimony to it later. We may have parts of an event that we can label A, B, C, D, and E. And one person may record, recall and record parts A, C, and D, while another person recalls and records parts B, D, and E. Both accounts are true, yet neither account is complete by itself. This is the nature of the gospel accounts. And we see that all the time in, in our lives today. The apostles could not have known that the answers to these questions would describe separate events which would occur many years apart from each other. They imagined the end of Jerusalem to mark the end of the age and the return of Christ. Many Christian preterists hold that same errant conclusion today. Christ did not clarify the matter for us, giving one long discourse and a single answer to all three of those questions. It is a challenge for us to sort it out, and it must be said that none of us are going to be able to sort it all out with clarity. That's just a, a fact of prophecy. Prophecy is so that we can see its fulfillment and look back and know that God is true. Prophecy is not so that we can read the prophecy and we could know the future. If that were the case, what would be the point? Matthew 24, 4. And replying, Yahshua said to them, Watch lest anyone should deceive you, for many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall deceive many. And I would like to read Mark and Luke, where they record that same statement. Mark 13, 5 says, Then Yahshua began to speak to them, Watch that not anyone would deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying that I am he, and they shall deceive many. And Luke 21, 8, and he said, Watch that you are not deceived, for many shall come by my name, saying, I am, and the time has come near. You should not go after them. In other words, you should not follow them. In the first few centuries of Christianity, many men were preaching false Christs, so to speak, meaning 
that they were attributing teachings to Yahshua Christ, which he did not actually intend for us. But it is not evident in the records which we have that they were actually claiming to be the Christ. Indeed, they were not. Yes, some people are going to point to Apollonius of Tiana, and Apollonius was probably only a Neo-Pythagorean philosopher. But much of what is related about him comes from a century later biographical novelist named Philostratus. And the emendations of fanciful writers of tales from the 4th century and later. Apollonius, there's no record of his claiming to be the Christ. There were also several minor would-be Messiah figures around the time of Christ, such as Judas, Judas the Golanite, who was described by Josephus. In reality, he was just a tax protester. He wasn't a Messiah, and there was no claim for him to be the Messiah, even though he thought he could lead the people to deliverance. None of these fits the circumstances which Joshua Christ relates here. Here, Joshua tells us specifically that many people would come claiming to be him, and this has not happened until the present era. In the present era, over the last two centuries, there have been <laughs> many figures specifically claiming to be the Christ, meaning an advent or reincarnation of Yahshua Christ. Among these are the Korean named Sung Young Moon, another Korean named An Sang Hong. They actually have millions of followers between them. Marshall Applewhite's another one. Jim Jones is another one. Bahula is another one. If you want to know who he is, he founded the the um, the the, the the heresy called the Baha'i religion, B-A-H-A-I. And there have been a host of several dozens of other assorted freaks, all claiming to be the Christ, Jesus Christ, if you would have it. Therefore, if this prophecy of Christ can only be seen to have been realized in more recent times, because there is no such attestation of its having happened in the early centuries of Christianity, then this entire discourse must also be applicable to these more recent times, as well as those parts of it which obviously apply to the past and to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and as we shall see comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not all three apostles recorded all of the discourse of Christ. In other words, Christ's answer to all three of the questions posed by the apostles must be in and throughout this entire discourse. Portions of it apply to 70 A.D., and, and in some senses a great deal of it, and, and portions of it surely shall apply to today. Because this very beginning of his answer only applies to this era which we live in today, and, and in reality to the last 200 or so years. That there were um, dozens of figures in the 19th and again in the 20th centuries claiming to be Jesus Christ. I know of none before that time. Matthew 24, 6. And you are going to hear of wars and reports of wars. See that you are not troubled, for it needs to happen, but not yet is the end. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of travails. Mark 13, 7 and 8 reads nearly identically to this passage in Matthew. 
But Luke 21, 9 through 11 reads thus. But when you hear of wars and disturbances, you should not be scared. And Christians should never be scared. For it is necessary that these things come first, but not immediately is the end. Then he said to them, Nation shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be both great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. There shall be both terrors and great signs from heaven. First, we see in Luke's version that there is the additional clause concerning great signs from heaven. And that word terrors can also be translated wonders. It is impossible to quantify such a prophecy until it happens. It was demonstrated When we covered Revelation chapter 8 here, a few months ago, that there really was a year where the sun and the moon were notably less bright, right at the same time that matches the historic prophecies which surrounded Revelation chapter 8 verse 12, as recorded by the ancient historian Procopius. So with this also, a literal fulfillment of this passage that we see here cannot be ruled out. Repeating Matthew 24, 6, And you are going to hear of wars and reports of wars, see that you are not troubled, for it needs to happen, but not yet is the end. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of travails. The period in Roman history from 27 B.C. to 180 A.D. was described by Gibbon, the historian of Rome, as the Pax Romana. And many other historians have followed in agreeing with Gibbon's assessment. Aside from the border wars in Germany and Parthia, and the conquest of Britain under Claudius in the 5th and 6th decades of the 1st century, and aside from the war in Judea in 65 to 70 AD, and the battles for succession as emperor in 68 to 70 AD, for most of that period, there was relative peace throughout the Roman Empire. None of these events, which happened leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, could meet the description given by Christ here, that you are going to hear of wars and reports of wars, and nation shall rise against nation, since none of them could, none of the things which actually happened in that period could be seen as extraordinarily or as extraordinary in life under Roman rule. Yet while we have always had war in some degree, over the past 200 years we have never had so much war and so many deaths from war. And while it seems remote to us now, only 70 years ago, 63 million people died in World War II alone, where practically every single nation on earth was involved. And Christ says, but not yet is the end. And while we have not had a lot of famine in white Adamic lands lately, we saw 20 million Ukrainian Russians, Ukrainians and Russians, white Christians, die from famine during the Stalin regime in the 1930s. On a much smaller scale, many died from starvation during the Dust Bowl and Depression era here in North America. Many Europeans died due to famine and disease in post-war Europe. It was a famine organized by certain elements in France, which enticed the common people into supporting the famous revolution there, which initiated the modern era. And we cannot really say that that won't happen again. Matthew 
Then they shall hand you over into tribulation, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated by all of the heathens, or by all of the nations, on account of my name. And then many shall be entrapped, and they shall betray one another and hate one another. Now there were doubtless persecutions of Christians instigated by the Jews in the years leading up to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. But those persecutions also continued long after the destruction of Jerusalem, initially all the way to the 4th century A.D., but this cannot relate to the first century alone. And since it is talking more specifically in anticipation of the time of the end of the age, it cannot really be referring to the early persecution of Christians at all, although they were a part of the overall picture. Many of the apostles and their followers were slain by or on account of the Jews in the years leading up to the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem. But the persecution of Christians certainly did not end there. During the French Revolution, for the first time in Europe, we saw an organized slaughter of the clergy. While it is without doubt that the Catholic clergy was vastly rich and powerful, the reaction was not a turn to Protestantism, but it was rather a de-Christianization, or at least an attempted de-Christianization of France, and the organization and the institution of an atheist state religion. This was accompanied by an emancipation of the Jews in France, by the fruits of a revolution its true instigators are fully revealed. The Christian clergy, and Christians in general, have been persecuted in every single revolution since the French Revolution. And all of these revolutions have been inspired and organized by Jews. The only reason that Christians have not really been persecuted here in America is that most Christians in America are now so-called Judeo-Christians, and therefore, they aren't really Christians at all, right? They're whores for the Jews. It was not that way during the first decades of our nation's history. Now, every once in a while, when anyone seeks to uphold true Christian values or morals, we see that tyrannical government steps in to squelch them. And so the true nature of our governments as they are now is revealed. Today, there have been many court rulings against Christians in the United States and especially in Europe and in Britain. Therefore, we cannot rule out the possibility of further persecutions of Christians right here in our own Christian nations if and when the government tyranny feels threatened by Christians. Today, some government officials have already slanderously characterized certain Christians as terrorists and enemies of the state for no good reason. Yet we cannot forget that the Catholics, while they may have been Christians of a sort, in order to maintain their own power over Christendom, they had already slaughtered many of their own Protestant brethren in Germany. The Thirty Years' War, the Romish Church against Protestantism, killed half of the adult men of Germany. Three-tenths of the overall population and a third of the Czechs. France, under de' Medici rule, persecuted the Huguenots, killing many thousands of them. This is the fulfillment of those who sought the word of God in the opening of the little book described in Revelation chapter 10. In a great way, we can see a major fulfillment of these verses in Matthew 24, 9 and 10 in the Reformation and in its aftermath. But simply because the Reformation is perceived as having come to a close, that does not mean that those same forces are not at work today. For we see that the daughters of the Reformation, those various Protestant church organizations which ultimately sprung from it, have again fallen totally under the sway of those same powers who had once persecuted their founders. 
Of course, the true Christian should know that vengeance belongs to Yahweh our God. And the true Christian should never really want to run into confrontations with the governments of this world, which we can never win anyway. Yet no true Christian would ever or should ever want to deny Christ or the truth of the gospel. Wherever it comes down to the two, Christians must choose allegiance to Christ. Christ said, as we see that Mark 8, 38, For whoever should be ashamed of me and my words among this adulterous and sinful race, also the Son of Man shall be ashamed of him when he should come in the honor of his Father with the holy messengers. He was talking to the people of Judea, but it should be no different for us today. This was also recorded at Luke 9.26, and it was a sentiment often uttered by Paul in his epistles. At 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, we read, And now, children, you abide in him, that if he should appear, we should have free spokenness and would not be dishonored by him at his presence. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him. Christians should not ever be dissuaded from the gospel and the commandments of Christ. So if persecutions of Christians do come here, and they may indeed yet come, we see that we must do our best to abide them and to remain in our faith. Matthew 24, verse 11. And many false prophets shall arise, and they shall deceive many. And for reason that lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many shall grow cold. While this is also evident throughout history, it is no more evident in history than it is today. Today we have a million preachers and clergymen professing to be preaching the gospel, and not one of them is preaching the truth. Today we have clowns like Frank McCourt publishing books, Conversations with God. Paul tells us there's one mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ. It is not Frank McCourt. I believe that's his name. That man should go in his room and pray. Possibly be godly. For this reason, that we have so many people teaching lies, we are besieged with Jewish perversions, pornography, sexual deviancy, and all sorts of other abominations because we support these people teaching lies. The family unit in most places is destroyed, and women are liberated from men that they may become slaves to sexual perversions, just as we see that is one primary goal of the Jewish Communist Manifesto. Compared to medieval times when all real whites were Christians, now comparatively few whites are Christians, and most of those who claim to be Christians actually worship the Jews rather than the Christ. Although we haven't gotten to a discussion of verses 13 and 14 here yet, in order to treat this passage fairly, we must compare all of Matthew 24, 9 through 13 to the equivalent passages in Mark and Luke, so I will read them now. Mark 24, 9. I'm sorry, Matthew 24, 9. Then they shall hand you over into tribulation, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated by all of the heathens, or nations, on account of my name. And then many shall be entrapped, and they shall betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and they shall deceive many. And for reason that lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many shall grow cold. But he who endures to the end, he shall be preserved. And this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations and then shall the end come. Mark 13, 9. But you watch out for yourselves, 
They shall hand you over to the councils, and you shall be beaten in the assembly halls, and you shall be made to stand before governors and kings because of me for testimony to them. And in all the nations it is first necessary for the good message to be proclaimed. And when they bring you, handing you over, do not practice beforehand what you should say. But that which should be given to you at that hour, that you shall say. For it is not you who are speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And brother shall hand over brother unto death, and father child. And children shall rise up against parents and slay them. And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but he abiding to the end, he shall be saved. Luke 21.12 But before all of these things they shall lay hands, they shall lay their hands upon you and persecute you, being handed over to the assembly halls and prisons, being led before kings and governors because of my name. It shall result in a testimony for you. Therefore you said it in your hearts, not to practice speaking in defense beforehand. For I shall give you a mouth in wisdom, which all those opposing you shall not be able to withstand or contradict. But you shall be handed over, even by parents and brethren and kinsmen and friends, and they shall kill some of you, and you shall be hated by all on account of my name. Yet a hair from your heads shall by no means be lost, in your endurance, you must gain your lives. It must be noted that Mark's version of Yahshua's discourse connects the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom more closely to the persecutions of Christians as they have always occurred. Where from Matthew's version, one may be led to believe that the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom would follow those persecutions, right? Luke's version of the discourse does not mention the gospel of the kingdom specifically. However, that does not mean that it was not inferred, for Luke certainly mentions the gospel often. And he does later in his chapter. The point in discussing this is that some would attempt to distinguish the gospel of the kingdom with that gospel which has always been known to us as it has always been preached. While today, many of us have a deeper understanding of Scripture as it relates to the covenants, there is only one gospel. It always has been the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew twenty four thirteen. But he who endures to the end, he shall be preserved, and this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth, for a testimony to all the nations, and then shall the end come. Mark thirteen thirteen states, And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but he abiding to the end, he shall be saved. Luke twenty one seventeen to 19 And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, yet a hair from your head shall by no means be lost, and your endurance you must gain your lives. We have many other promises that all Israel shall be preserved, that all of the seed or offspring of the children of Israel shall be saved. But we are not all tried in the same manner. We have not all been forced to choose between life and death on behalf of Christ. So this promise that he who endures to the end, he shall be preserved, it must indicate something else, that only those of us who are destined to face such a trial must live up to it. Here is Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 12, and another a third messenger followed them, saying with a great voice, If one worships the beast in its image and receives an engraved mark upon his forehead or upon his hand, then he shall drink from the wrath of the wine of Yahweh, which is poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. I'm sorry, the wine of the wrath of Yahweh. 
And he shall be tormented in fire and sulfur before the holy messengers and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for eternal ages. And they who worship the beast in its image, and one who receives the engraved mark of its name, shall not have rest day and night. Thus is the patience of the saints, they keeping the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yahshua. Now this passage is in the aftermath of the fall of Babylon, which we see in verse 8, though it cannot be taken out of that context. Here we see that if Babylon's fall, those who worship the beast shall be punished with the wrath of God. Some of us are tried in the faith, and we are destined for a higher reward when we overcome our trials. Some of us worship the things of this world, and we shall be punished with the wrath of God, and that is our trial. All of us, being Israelites, are saints. As we see here in Revelation 14.12, where it speaks of those who face his wrath. Peter discusses the trial by fire of this life in his first epistle at 1 Peter 1.7. And I quote, That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Yahshua Christ. Paul states at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll quote from verse 12. Now, if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who has built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. For those of us whose lot it is to face trials in this world because of our own disobedience, so be it, we can do nothing about it when those people do not heed the call. But we who profess to know better should nevertheless do our best to pull our brethren out of the sins of the world when we can. James said at the end of his first epistle, My brethren, if one among you should stray from the truth and should correct him, and, you sh and one should correct him, I'm sorry, you must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save us all from death and shall cover a multitude of errors. But for those of us destined to face trial on behalf of Christ, we must abide in our profession, and in that we shall gain our lives. In other words, truth and an adherence to the gospel, bear a greater responsibility. Revelation 13, 9-10 is but one passage which teaches us such predestination, where it says, If one has an ear, he must hear. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. We must realize this, that Yahweh alone is sovereign. At Luke 12:41, Peter asks about a certain parable, and Yahshua answers thus, and I quote, Then Peter said, Prince, to us do you speak this parable, or to all? And the prince said, Who then is the faithful, sensible steward? whom the master appoints over his attendants to give the allotment of grain at the proper time. Blessed is that servant 
who coming his master finds doing thus. Truthfully, I say to you that he shall appoint him over all his belongings. But if that servant should say in his heart, my master delays coming, and he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants, then to eat and to drink and be drunken, the master of that servant shall arrive in a day in which he does not expect, and at an hour in which he does not know, and he will cut him in two, and he shall set his portion with the faithless. Well, that's a fate we would all want to avoid, right? Now that servant, who knowing the will of his master, and not preparing or doing according to his will, shall be clubbed much. So with truth, and with knowledge, come responsibility. But he not knowing, yet doing such worthy of blows, shall be clubbed little. That's our ignorant brethren. Do not despise them. <laughs> you may be clubbed all the more. All to whom much is given, much shall be sought from him. And to whom much is committed, far more shall be demanded of him. Will there be further persecutions of Christians? We've had some horrible persecutions of Christians in this age. The Thirty Years' War, the French Revolution, German social revolutions in the 1800s, the Bolshevik Revolution, where the Jews killed most all of the clergy and Christians of, of Russia and shut down all the churches, the Spanish Revolution, where the commies in Spain were slaughtering nuns and priests. I know that we all know that Catholicism is wrong, but those people are still Christians to one degree or another, right? It's still not right to just murder them because they're Catholics. We were also Catholics at one time, or Baptists, or Episcopalians. The Jews, having come to the forefront of our society, persecute Christians whenever they get the chance. And if they have the opportunity again, they will openly persecute Christians just like they did in old Rome according to Tertullian and several other early church writers, the Jews were responsible for instigating the Roman persecutions of the Christians. And just like they did during all the revolutions of Europe. We should certainly anticipate the possibility of further persecutions of Christians. If it doesn't happen, then we should be thankful to God. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you should see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he reading, must understand. Then those who were in Judea must flee into the mountains. He upon the housetop must not go down to take his things from the house, and he in the field must not turn back to take his garment. But woe to those being pregnant and those with infants in those days. And you must pray that your flight should not be in winter nor on the Sabbath. For at that time there shall be great tribulation, such as has not happened from the beginning of society or the beginning of the world, until now. Nor by any means should happen. And unless those days would be shortened, there would not be any flesh saved, but on account of the elect, those days shall be shortened. This statement, when you should see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken by Daniel the prophet, can be perceived as referring to several different things. First, we must remember that Christ was answering three questions 
when shall these things be in reference to his statements concerning the destruction of Jerusalem? And then, what is the sign of your coming and of the consummation of the age in reference to Christ's many statements which mention the end of the age? First, let us note how Mark and Luke recorded these statements in the corresponding portion of their Gospels. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Then when you should see the abomination of desolation, standing where it is not proper, he reading must understand. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains. He upon the housetop must not go down nor enter in to take anything from his house. And he who is in the field must not turn back to the things behind to take his garment. But woe to those being pregnant and with infants in those days. And you must pray that it would not be winter. For there shall be tribulation in those days of a sort that has not happened from the beginning of the creation which Yahweh had created until now, and shall not happen. And unless Yahweh has shortened the days, not any flesh would be saved. But on account of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened the days. Luke 21.20 But when you, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. We have to note that that's very different from the other two versions, right? Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her. Because these are the days of vengeance, by which all the things which are written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived, and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth, and wrath for all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathen, until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. That means ended. And there shall be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth an affliction by the heathens, the sea and the waves roaring in difficulty, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of that which is coming upon the inhabited earth. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud in the midst of power and much effulgence. And upon the beginning of these things happening, straighten up and raise your heads, since your redemption approaches. The version of Yahshua's discourse given here by Matthew and Mark must refer to the abomination that maketh desolate, prophesied in Daniel chapters 11 and 12. This apparently has nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The version recorded here in the Gospel of Luke refers to the desolation of Jerusalem foretold in Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. This does not mean that Yahshua did not originally explain both. It is evident that he certainly did. But the two, two of the apostles, Matthew and Mark, recorded only one aspect of Yahshua's discourse, while the third concentrated on another aspect. However, both aspects are perfectly legitimate. Yet because Luke's version of the account has a clear fulfillment in history, we shall discuss that first. The version presented by Matthew and Mark but which it, it, it has very little to do with what actually happened in Jerusalem, and it has a lot more to do with, I believe, what would happen in the time of the end. Christ is answering 
three questions here. When shall these things be, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem, and and what is the signs of thy coming, and when shall the end come, and and his return, and in the time of the end of the age, right? The version presented by Matthew and Mark, and, and, and some of this version presented by Luke, from, from verses 25 on, I'm not going to have time to present this week. I will present it next week. This week, we will see the clear historical fulfillment of the first five verses of Luke's version. Luke wrote from verse 20 of chapter 21, But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her. This has an application today. It will be discussed next week. But it has a perfectly historical fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem. Because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled, by which all the things written concerning Jerusalem are to be fulfilled. Not all the things written concerning the world by 70 AD. There's a clear distinction that has to be made there. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth or the land and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. Yes, that word heathens can be translated nations. During the Judean war with Rome, the Roman general Cestius had Jerusalem under siege. And he almost took the city, according to Josephus. When for no apparent reason, he lifted the siege and departed. This is what the historian Josephus records. From Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Line 538. And now it was that a horrible fear seized upon the seditious. In other words, the rebels in Jerusalem. Insomuch that many of them ran out of the city as though it were to be taken immediately. That's how, thought, how they thought it was going to be taken right then, right? But the people upon this took courage, and where the wicked part of the city gave ground, there did they come in order to open the gates and to admit Cestius, the Roman, as their benefactor, who, had he but continued the siege a little longer, would have certainly taken the city. But it was, I suppose, meaning Josephus, owing to the aversion God had already at the city in the sanctuary, that he was hindered from putting an end to the war that very day. In other words, Josephus is even saying that God decreed that, that, that the sanctuary and the, and, and the city should suffer longer. Then it happened that Cestius was not conscious either how the besieged despaired of success, nor how courageous the people were for him. And so he recalled his soldiers from the place. And by despairing of any expectation of taking it, without having received any disgrace, he retired from the city without any reason in the world. Cestius, having had the upper hand, and for no apparent reason withdrawing from the siege of Jerusalem, then suffered a great loss, and a great deal of his army, to the pursuing Judeans while he was moving his army away from the city. After recording this, Josephus then goes on to relate, in Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, from 556, 
After this calamity, the loss of much of his army, had befallen Cestius, many of the most eminent of the Judeans fled from the city, as if from a ship when it was, when it was going to sink. Costobarus, therefore, and Saul, who were brothers, together with Philip, the son of Iacomus, who was the commander of King Agrippa's forces, ran away from the city and went to Cestius. So while it may have been apparent that the city was spared, many fled contrary to expectation. And some even fled to join themselves to a Roman general who had just suffered a great defeat in his withdrawal at the hands of the Judeans because they assaulted his armies as he was withdrawing. This is not understood unless one knows what is going on inside the city. Josephus, in his account of these events, often spoke of the good and the bad parts of the city. He credits a high priest of the time, Ananus, with having uttered these words, and I quote, Certainly it had been good for me to die, meaning Ananus, before I had seen the house of God so full of so many abominations, or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of these blood-shedding villains, talking about the people of Jerusalem who had taken the temple as their fortress. Just as Joseph has testified, Daniel had prophesied that for the overspreading of abominations, he, meaning Yahweh, shall make it desolate. Any Christian in Jerusalem who had the words of Christ also had his chance to escape the coming carnage. It is therefore highly unlikely that any Christian remained in Jerusalem at this time, or that any Christian even considered himself to be a Judean at this time, since Paul clearly taught that in accepting Christ, they were to lose their identity as Judeans, becoming all one in Christ, right? Well, Luke wrote that when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, that it was time to flee into the mountains. And how could that be if Jerusalem was encompassed with armies? Because when a city is under siege, anyone who flees is usually killed by the people of the city for refusing to help defend the city. They are killed as traitors. And that was a very common practice in the ancient world. You did not want to flee a city under siege. The only way the only way that Christ's words could have been fulfilled is if the siege was for some reason lifted, so that the good people of the city had a chance to escape, as Josephus tells us. So we see that Cestius as Josephus records, when he was on the verge of victory, lifted his siege for no apparent reason. The only way that could be is so that the words of Christ, as they were recorded by Luke, could be fulfilled. That's the That's the only explanation for that. I have no other explanation. There is no other explanation. Now, Luke's words may be applicable to the things in our future. Matthew and Mark and what they say about this um 
and 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 their versions of this passage they are applicable in part to what happened in Jerusalem but i don't believe they are in whole i believe in whole they've yet to be fulfilled we will discuss that next week along with the rest of Luke's passage which certainly doesn't apply to 70 AD Well, Luke verses 20 through 24 can only really refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The later part of Luke's record cannot relate to 70 AD. But with that part of Yahshua's discourse that has to do with the end of the age, where he states from verse 25, And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and upon the earth an affliction by the heathens, the sea and the waves roaring in difficulty. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of that coming upon the inhabited earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. I believe that has to do with the non-Adamic races rising up against us. I will discuss that at great length next week. The sea and the waves roaring in difficulty is not talking about the oceans. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud in the midst of much power and effulgence. And upon the beginning of these things happening, straighten up and raise your heads, since your redemption approaches. With this, we shall pick up part two of this presentation next week. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh.